I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. I'm honored to be interviewing Rowan Ricardo Phillips today. Rowan is a poet, author, screenwriter, translator, and journalist. He has won many prestigious literary prizes and written four books, When Blackness Rhymes with Blackness, The Ground, Heaven, which just won the Nicholas Guillen Outstanding Book Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association, and his most recent, The Circuit, A Tennis Odyssey. He has written about sports for the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Paris Review. An English professor, he has taught at Harvard, Columbia, NYU, Princeton, and Stony Brook. He graduated from Swarthmore College and received his PhD from Brown University. He currently lives in New York and Barcelona. Just a friendly reminder, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Momstone Have Time to Read Books, and please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks so much. So I'm really excited to be here today with Rowan Ricardo Phillips, who's the author of The Circuit. We've already been chit-chatting for a while, so I feel like we could talk forever. Welcome, Rowan. Hi, Zibby. <laughs> Tell us what The Circuit is about and what gave you the idea to write it. Yeah, The Circuit is a book just published last year, still weird to say last year, 2018 in November by my publisher, Feroz Grouse and Drew. It's a book about tennis and life. It's set to one year, the 2017 season from the start, January 1st through the end, in the end of November. So it becomes a chronicle of a year in the life of tennis and the way in which that year kind of marks a really incredible way that we saw two players that we thought were maybe done for come back more triumphant than ever. Talking, of course, about Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. But it's not a book about Federer and Nadal. It's a book about the year, the grind on the circuit. It focuses on the men's tour, though it also mentions the women's tour when the two intersect at places like Indian Wells, which I know you like to go to. I do too, and some of the majors. But it's really, it's a year in the life. 2017 was a unique year on the court and off. And I've often found myself wondering whether life seeps into the world of tennis or whether tennis keeps it out. And it seemed like a wonderful year to kind of test that and explore it. And, you know, Andre Agassi, who's a player I've always loved, and he has that wonderful autobiography open. And he was, like, he he was on the about, podcast. I know, <laughs> I know. Hi, Andre, if you're listening. Um, but he, he talked about how he was explaining to his trainer, Gil, about the circuit, the grind, the tour, and how it's players chasing the sun. Right. Mm. In such an elegant way to think about it. And for me, it became a control among so many variables in tennis and in life. Who are you? Where are you? Where have I come from? What am I doing here? And you see in tennis players a lot of that going through their head while you're watching them. That's part of what I love about it. They're really exposed. No helmets, no mm -hmm. teammates to pass to. And it's really just kind of the kinetics of problem solving. You're, you're watching it either live or on television, and you don't know what's going to happen, but you feel involved and implicated. And I think that's why people become such devout fans of players. So, yeah, that's what it's, it's about. It's a book that kind of lives and breathes tennis, but as a way to kind of understanding how we live and what it means to kind of like think about a year in the life, right? Totally. You described it so beautifully in the beginning of your book when you were saying how, you know, 2017 came with it, a lot of geopolitical, national 
you know, controversy and issues and all the rest. And in the book, you were kind of debating, you know, maybe this is an escape. Is, is watching tennis an escape from it all? So you wrote, the world feels slippery, dense, supercharged with social and political change. And yet for a few hours, here was tennis, literally a light in the sleepy darkness of my apartment. It's moments like this, these odd hours with the game on, when its metronome and angles take the form of therapy. I listen to the world take a deep breath. So beautiful. You can tell yes. this is like a poet writing a book. This is like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's like some people escape. There are different ways people escape. And tennis, I feel like, gives such a great way to do that. Yeah, I think that it becomes useful escape in two ways. One is for the individual. You know, it's January. I've been up way too early today because I've been watching the Australian mm-hmm. Open. And when you live on this side of the world, when the tennis year starts and the year starts, you know, if you catch matches live, it's this kind of commitment, you know? Sort of like, you know how so many people in January have these New Year's resolutions, and if you're an early bird, you look out your window and you see all these people running Mm -hmm. the first week of January, and then you see fewer the second week and fewer the third week. But with tennis, it's not a resolution. It's just it's that time to kind of get up early and watch tennis kind of rejuvenate itself again. But it's it's also, I think, an escape in an unexpected way in that it builds community. You don't know who else is up. Until mm. maybe, you know, you catch up with a friend, you're out at work, and you're like, oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm all right, but I've been up since four because Roger Federer was playing. I really wanted to see that match. Oh, you too. Da, da, da. So there are ways in which these private joys that you have can become communal and bring us together. I also like to think of tennis as being an escape that rather paradoxically builds bridges. It's not an escape to shut yourself off, but it's rather an escape from the kind of paint-by-numbers life that we live if we're not careful. You know, when you follow tennis, when you follow a player you love, you know, you're in Melbourne one moment, and then you are in Miami the next moment, and then you're in Monte Carlo the next moment, and it almost becomes like a, a caper or a chase. And I like that. It's really crazy how much travel is involved. It's really crazy. Like, before crazy. I married Kyle, who's like, was in the professional tennis world and is a, such an addict that we watch every every tournament all the time. I really like, like that guy. <laughs> I like him too. I couldn't <laughs> believe how much travel. Like these guys were just in this part of the world, and now like two days later, I'm like they're in another tournament. So far, it's crazy what your body has to go through. I mean, after I like go to LA and I'm like, oh my, I'm jet lag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just got but back from Key West myself, and I'm like, oh, right. I mean, to have to travel that much and then perform at such a high level, it's such a big ask of these players, really. Yeah, and well, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to set the book to a year Mm -hmm. because I wanted to see the way in which characters kind of appear and reappear. I started to think about players who, you know, if you're not a top 30 player, say, and you lose in the first round of a tournament... You're getting on a plane and finding the next tournament. Yeah. You know? And it's hard to even really make a living, even if you're not like in the top. Absolutely. Right? With all the, you know. Absolutely. The grind is real. And even when, spoiler alert, the circuit begins in Brisbane, right? Everybody's warming up for the Australian Open and you see players showing up and they're fresh. The Australian Open is great because you see players fresh. The new line of whatever brand they wear is fresh. You're not Mm -hmm. tired of it yet. But then when you see them in, say, September, At the Australian Open, not so fresh, Mm -hmm. you know? And in that way, the book, it's a tennis odyssey. The title is The Circuit, A Tennis Odyssey. But it's really also kind of like an Iliad as well. There's just, there are a lot of people in it. And there's a lot of injury and there's a lot of trial and tribulation. And some folks you see in the beginning don't make it to the end. And some folks who are down for the count in the beginning 
pick themselves up in the end. It's a real, it's a grind. It's a beautiful grind. I don't know how they do it and sustain it, but I love to spend time with them in that way. It's, it's a game that I think is deceiving, Zibi, because it seems like it's about swinging a racket, but it's about your feet and it's about your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, the strokes, you get those kind of hardwired into you by the time you're 11 or 12, yep. right? And you make some tweaks going forward, but, you know, you have to have your strokes by then. The rest mm -hmm. is kind of like how you think and how, you, how your feet think. You love Roger Federer. I spend some time, because I've spent most of my adult life watching him, I watch his feet now mm -hmm. more than anything else. I just kind of watch his feet. See, the thing about Federer is that you know, what you were saying about you know, no helmets and that you get to see the players, yeah. I feel like Roger Federer is so stoic. Like he does, He's so good about not showing his emotion that I feel like I'm like gypped sometimes. <laughs> his, his tennis is beautiful. It's like watching art. But I feel like, and I can, I can talk about this short, but anyway, I feel like someone like Juan Martin Del Pocho is so expressive, right? And you see it and he like gets it. So I feel like I connect more sometimes with players who have it, who are like more like open books. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're more Del Potro, not Federer. No, that's it's okay. Right. It's Kyle like Del Potro. That's I don't, right. You don't have to memorize all this stuff. Well, but no, that's, I think that's, that's fascinating because you say Federer is so stoic, but Federer's Biggest meltdown on a court was against Del Potro. Mm. 2009 U.S. Open final. Del Potro wants to challenge a call. He takes his time. Del Potro takes his time with most things. There's the amount of time you have before you can challenge. The chair ump allows it, and Federer is irate. And is doing changeover, and Federer just started going off on the chair umpire. And the chair umpire says to Federer, you know, well, I allowed it. You can calm down. And Federer just went off on him. Mm. You know, don't tell me what to do. I'll talk whenever I want to talk. Da, 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 da. So I love that relationship between those two. I'm going to split the difference between the two of you. I like those two as a pair. Yes. I love Federer Del Potro matches so much. And you were saying, you know, when you were saying Federer yelling at the umpire, and I was like thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. I wouldn't mind going back and seeing that. You have a whole thing about bad boys in the book, like oh, Nick yeah. Curious and how different, you know, what, what do you think? I know this wasn't something I was thinking about ahead of time, but what do you think about tennis like really sparks that bad boy instinct or makes people, you know, even just, just come out with it more than maybe in other Sports, mm. or maybe not. I don't know. Well, you know, you are in tennis hyper-controlled until you're not. Mm -hmm. So many pros, their coaches, their first coach was their folks, and many times yeah. their coach still is their parents, or their parents are on the tour with them. Obviously not all of them, but, you know, you have a weird relationship with a coach if the coach is not your parent and that you pay them, but they're supposed to be bossing you around, mm -hmm. but you know that since you carry the purse strings. So I think that there are very limited ways for tennis players to sort out their stresses. Mm -hmm. And I think that the kind of enfant triple comes out from that, that you don't have venues to pop. You can see, I mean, one of the things that's so amazing about Open is how open mm -hmm. Andre was about all of that. He was a guy who had all the accoutrements of a bad boy that he would get in his car and he would turn on Celine Dion right. or what have you, right? Yeah. Because that's actually who he was. And a lot of tennis players, I guess, to survive, they build up a big metaphorical callus or mm -hmm. they're like an artichoke and it's hard to peel back the layers. But when you do, you find an idiosyncratic, complicated human being. I like that. What I don't like about the whole bad boy thing often and what I write about in the book regarding Nick is that 
we've seen it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, do something. Yeah. yeah, you know, and every every bad boy thinks they're inventing the wheel mm-hmm. and that, you know, I don't like tennis or I'm going to, you know, do what I want to do. But it's kind of, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah. But everybody, everybody has to go through their process. You have kids, I have kids, and, you know, I just kind of like trust the process and I find myself realizing as I get older that even if you've seen stuff before, sometimes people feel like they're discovering things and it's important for them to have that discovery. So, you know, Nick is somebody who seems like he's realized he needs some help mm-hmm. off the court and he's starting to embrace that and he had a really bad result in this Australian Open already. But hopefully now he's going to start to be a trust the process person. He's got the talent to win multiple majors, but, you know, you got to go through seven matches and you're not always going to be playing Federer or Djokovic or Nadal to get right. that adrenaline yeah. running. Sometimes you're going to be playing the 270th player in the world and you got to want that too. Speaking of process, so tell me a little more about how you wrote this book. When mm. did you write it? Did you write it like while you were watching the matches? Did you take notes all year and then go back? Like how mm. did how did you and how did this book's process differ, if at all, from how you wrote your other books? Oh wow, what a question! I didn't in January first say I'm going to write a book about the year in tennis. I knew I was going to start writing. I was already writing some sports pieces for the Paris Review and the New Yorker, but I basically write what moved me when it moved me. I tore my Achilles tendon in the summer of 2016. It left me bedridden at home and I was watching a lot of tennis. Popped up on a lot of oxycodone, (laughs) which I stopped taking as soon as I could stop taking it, which you should do because it's very potent. But I was was just watching so much tennis and I had so many questions about what was next, what was next after we saw Federer take that basically pratfall in center court at Wimbledon, what was next for Del Potro, who Mm -hmm disappeared with the injuries and surgeries on his wrist. What was next for Nadal? What was next for Serena? What the hell happened to Djokovic? Mm -hmm. I had, who was coming next? Because it didn't really look like anyone was really ready. Mm -hmm. I had so many questions. I mean, I felt like 2016 was a cliffhanger, and so I wanted to start writing. And, you know, the Paris Review has always been really good for me and good to me, and I've repaid them by giving them, I think, pieces that they're really proud of. And, you know, I started by writing on the Australian Open. Before you knew it, we had a final of Venus and Serena and also Roger and Rafa. The day of the final between Federer and Nadal was also the day of the executive order and the airport protests and Mm. everything. And Mm -hmm. I really started to think about how, you know, some people were really up to watch this match because they thought, holy cow, it's a Grand Slam final between Federer and Nadal. I don't know when this is going to happen again. And when that match was over, they went to the airports. You know, and they congregated and they protested and started thinking about the ways in which, you know, tennis is part of the world, implicitly, explicitly, whatever way it might be. And I was writing essays, and as I was writing on these matches, just kind of like the the pull of a story and of a book formed. And so those essays grew into a larger project, which became the book. I'm not a note taker when I watch matches. I, I'm, I'm pretty big with... Actually, I, I think I can answer both of your questions regarding the process and other books at the same time. I do a lot of my work in my head. Actually, I like the risk of forgetting things. Yes, I have a notebook. Yes, I'm an avid note taker. But I do that not in the white heat of ideas. I like to think that if an idea is good, if an idea is memorable, you'll remember it. Mm-hmm. And it's even better if you don't remember syllable by syllable what you said at that time. It becomes rather this like atmosphere or this mood that you have to put back together. The Nobel Prize winning poet Derek Walcott, in his address in Stockholm, he'd said something to the effect of, take a broken vase and piece it back together, and the love you'll find in those seams is greater than the beauty of 
an uncracked vase, right? And I like to think about that when I think about how I approach writing in general. I let what's important bubble up, right? So Rafa, once again in 2017, like in 2018, put everybody to the sword at the French Open, right? Mm -hmm. What was memorable to me about those tournaments then is not necessarily that. You can click on any type of match report and see that Nadal completely annihilated someone, right? Just the Thanos snap mm -hmm. and they turned into dust. Mm -hmm. But those, I love the, I love sometimes the great matches on court 18. I love sometimes when you're at a tournament and there's stuff going on on the main court or whatever, but all of a sudden there's this kind of buzz and people start filling up this court where you're like, why is it going on court 14? What's the yeah, you know? What's going on over there? And oh, that's just... Oh, that's just what it's all about. So I let my my passions and my sense of things bring me through whatever whatever matches seemed really kind of alive and worth worth dipping in amber, worth remembering. You know, you know, that's more than the match report or the final, you know, the final score or what have you. For instance, I mean, Nadal in 2017 in that final just destroyed Stan Wawrinka. But I think Stan played a really good match. I think Stan played really well. There's just sometimes only so much you can do. Your memory is insane that you know all, you can oh. you can like recall it with just I mean it seems like your brain is like it's like you have it all. Uh, I don't know. I think it's kind of like a job requirement. That's all what, right. But I, that's what I love about that's what I also love about tennis though. Like a good tennis player has to if Kyle and I played and Kyle whipped me, mm -hmm. I hope I would have a sense of how he whipped me, mm -hmm. right? And I could try something different. Maybe it wouldn't work, but you can't just keep Ah, uh, walking into the same wall again and mm -hmm. again and again and again. And that's part of what was also fun about the book. Sometimes you have John and Larry played in Indian Wells in March, and now here they are in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. What's different? Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe that's also from not always just writing things down. I remember things, I'm, I'm compelled by things, and hopefully when I write a book, what I remember and what I want to tell you as a reader, you also think, you know what? Oh, I remember that. And yeah, that was awesome. Or, oh, I didn't remember that. I'm really glad to be diving back into that. But that's kind of, I don't know, that's the work of being human. All, you know, you write these books, all these wonderful authors that you have on, on your wonderful podcast. It's kind of like the work of being human and humane. And even with technology, whether it's these wonderful rackets and strings that now have, you know, you'll see, I was just in... Key West, and you'll see some septuagenarians who just are wailing on the ball. <laughs> if they could get to it, you know what I mean? They don't have the same coverage that they used to, but if they catch in the swing path, holy cow. And my my like dad isn't such a good tennis player. He's 70 plus. It's as if, I mean, they can do whatever. It's well, like, and that's what it's all, I mean, I hope, you know, I hope when I'm in my 70s, I can, you know, play with Kyle or play with the people <laughs> I hit with now or play with my girls mm -hmm. and they could play with each yeah. other. And it's a sport that's done a lot of damage to a lot of people. But it's a beautiful, bridge-building, expressive sport that at its best also absorbs the environment that mm -hmm. it's in. We were talking about that wonderful yeah. court in Monte Carlo. Yeah. But, you know, tennis becomes part of the environment that it's... It is, and you know, in any type of club you go to, the the people who are there also become part of kind of like the lived history of the mm -hmm. of the region. They become beautiful tennis courts, become beautiful nexuses for people to kind of like meet the morning people. I love a morning hit. Yeah. The people who will hit in the middle of the day, bless them. I don't know how they do it, and then the night birds. But you learn a lot about yourself through tennis, and I've certainly learned a lot about myself. So absolutely. 
Totally agree. The way you also describe all the different players, how the guys on the tour become just the characters and like the story that you tell. And you write about it in such a great way. Like even when you're talking about Djokovic, when he got like, <laughs> we're watching, I'm like, what's, he looks so skinny, doesn't he? And meanwhile, you write it beautifully. You're like, Djokovic, for his part, was looking as gaunt as he ever had, not slender or slim, but approaching skeletal as though his body were defending on itself from bottom to top, culminating in a sucked out space on each side of his face where his cheeks used to be flush with life and two dark vacancies where his eyes should be. That's just such a, that's a beautiful way to say, to comment on his physique and then also to intrigue the reader. Like, what was going on with Djokovic? Like, we don't know, right? I mean, do we? Must be the gluten. Must be the gluten, exactly. <laughs> and even when you talk about Alexander Dolgopolov, how do I pronounce that? Dolgopolov? Mm-hmm. His game is like the band you think no one has heard of, the one with too many or too few people in it, your guilty pleasure. That was so great. This is my last one to quote from about Nadal. Please don't Uh, stop. (laughs) Still, there was something singular about Nadal. A lesser physical specimen would look like a walking creamsicle in what he was wearing, but he had somehow managed to spend a lifetime making outfits no one should be able to look serious in seem full of intent. Isn't it true, though? It is true. It is true. He's such a singular, awe-inspiring, physical presence. He just makes stuff look good. Mm -hmm. He just shouldn't be able to wear that stuff, but he rocks it like, like the champ he is. And I've got a lot of admiration for that. Another one who, you know, they don't have the same body type, but Stan Farinka, when he won the French Open, I don't know if you remember, but he was wearing some like checkered shorts that looked yeah. like basically like golf pants that right. were cut off. And hey, man, hats off to you yeah, if you can win the French Open wearing that. <laughs> so your writing style you know, your background in poetry and everything, how is it different for you when you write prose versus poetry? Does it just seem so natural to you? It's like based on the material uh, you're writing about? or I think they're just different faucets, different taps. I, don't, I definitely don't have a moment where I go, now I'm writing poetry or now I'm writing prose, but both are, I think, about a relationship with time and space. When you write poetry, you have, if you're writing it down, you have a page. If you're composing in your head, there's still kind of space working out, but it's just kind of like you you have a different sense of how you're occupying that space. She sang beyond the genius of the sea, the water never formed to mind or voice, like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves. That's not me, that's Wallace Stevens. But that's just, poems can start from completely out of nowhere in a way that prose really can't. Mm -hmm. And so I just try to be attentive to what my relationship to what I want to say is. Poetry is how I understand the world, even if I'm writing in prose. But when I write in prose, I'm trying to establish a different type of relationship. I'm more interested in you knowing the who, what, where, how, why, and when of what we're talking about. And with poetry, it's the conversation from kind of like the sensorium, all of these kind of like things you can't name inside of you, and this conversation you're having with the past, right? Like classical music and jazz. Well, and rock and roll actually even too. These conversation with kind of like the greats of the past as well. You're trying to kind of wrestle them into your own type of song. But I'm really fortunate to have an editor who's so good to me at FSG and Jonathan Glassy, and he's he looked at the book and what I was doing and he was just like, this is great. Just don't put any poetry in it because the poetry <laughs> comes out of you anyway. So what you yeah. see in my writing style is kind of really, really just kind of like, if I don't think about poetry, the poetry leaks out. Mm-hmm. If I think about poetry when I'm writing prose, it's going to be kind of like, I wonder lonely as a cloud. And nobody's <laughs> going to be very interested in that. So um, it's just kind of like being aware of what my goals as a writer are at a given time. And I told this story in a, in a recent in- interview. It's not a story, don't worry, I'll keep it short. Poetry and, and tennis 
mixed in all types of unexpected ways. I was minding my own business once, and my dad called me. And he was like, turn on the TV. And I was like, turn on Wimbledon. I was like, the matches aren't going on. He was like, turn it on. And John Wertheim was reciting a tennis poem that he'd written about Wimbledon on the air, you know? And, you know, my folks have always been really supportive. I never had that moment where, where my folks were like, you want to do what? They're always really supportive of me. But it was kind of also nice to see that I don't have to be the poet mm-hmm. when it comes to these things, right? And I didn't write this thinking I'm a poet writing this book. I thought of, you know, John McPhee and his great levels of the game and John Wertheim and his great strokes of genius and Elizabeth Wilson's love game that I love so much and Steve Tigore's great book on Borg and McEnroe and Louisa Thomas's great, great writing for The New Yorker and the book's dedicated to her because she's as good as there is and just kind of carrying on the conversation. There have been so many wonderful tennis writers I'm happy to be among them, and hopefully I'm just kind of like paying what they've given me forward, you know? When you do that line by line, I guess, the best way that you can. And this book was the best way that I can. I don't know if I have a circuit (laughs) too. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's coming next? Oh, well, right now I'm working on a a screenplay, Mm. a biopic. It's a lot of fun, and just finished a new book of poems. And got another new fun project that's popping up. But what I love about this book has been the response. It's been really great and heartening. And I like the fact that people want more. I really wanted to write about the WTA and the ATP tour Mm -hmm. together. And actually, you know, I should have told you this at the beginning when you asked me about writing this book. At first, I was trying to do that. It's Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. It was a task that's greater than me. Mm -hmm. The two tours are just such different species, sadly. Not just the rules, but the locations and everything like that. And By the time the US Open is over, the WTA is basically in Asia the rest of the time. And something I come back to a lot, I I grew up loving women's tennis. I was fortunate to have folks who just really, like, really, really, really loved watching Martina and Chrissy. I had a girl crush on Chrissy Everett. She was like my hero growing up. Right, right. But then even Althea Gibson, when you go back, And even now, I mean, I've got a real soft spot for the women with the one-handers on the tour, you know, Mm -hmm. Carla Suarez Novato, Tatjana Maria, Margarita Gasparian. I just, I love the expressiveness of the women's game. I still maintain the Celis Capriati Capriati semifinal in 91 Mm -hmm. was maybe the most influential match of the past 35 years, that it brought the future that we didn't know was coming to tennis and then that, of course, was followed up by the Williams sisters and everything that came after. But that match, I still think of kind of like the Game of Thrones of tennis matches. It's a great match, and to see those kids not just hitting the ball that that hard, but being that competitive through three sets it was great. Sadly, and this is kind of part of the complicated part of tennis, right? I mean, Capriati and Celis, when you think about kind of what happened to both of them mm-hmm. down the road, and you didn't see any of that coming, but it mm-hmm. just reminds you how life throws all types of top spin and underspin and side spin at you. And they're both now thriving in different ways as well. And I also love to see, like Andre, who's, you know, I, I could not say enough about Andre Agassi, but I love seeing tennis players who kind of like find things after tennis mm-hmm. too. Yep. Yeah, it's heartening. It's really heartening. So for, I know we have to wrap up soon, but for aspiring poets or prose writers or tennis reporters, anyone, do you have any pieces of advice for them based on your experience? Mm. Well, based on my experience, I would say with poetry, I'd say read everything and live, you know? I don't, you know, I'm fortunate enough to travel 
a lot to read and talk about my work. And, you know, you get the expected question of who should I read? Who are your heroes? And those types of things. And I always say, you know, I have a non-hierarchical mind that, you know, your heroes will let you down because they're supposed to. And there are writers you don't think much of who might have a sentence or a poem or a short story that grabs you. And that's what it's also all about, the, the surprise of it. So just kind of like read everything and live intensely and you know, for people who are inspiring, who are aspiring, excuse me, to be part of, you know, writing on tennis. There's so many other people with better advice out there, I think, to, to give. But I, I do find there's a world out there in terms of writing on sports in general that you can maybe fit into, but it's not best for you in the long game. I've been on the ground at a number of events with credentials and you see the grind that, that it is, the schlag that it is. You know, match reports get written before the matches are over. Press boxes are crowded people can barely see. People are hustling down to ask a question of a tennis player or whatever athlete and a presser because the editor asked them to ask that question or they know that that's the only thing that's going to get filed, so they need mm -hmm. to take that angle. I mean, you, you can quite easily lose the quicksilver necessary idiosyncrasy of yourself, right? And I don't know what to say to anybody regarding that other than that the long game and sports and in art is the it's not only the most important thing it's the only thing the long game is the only game i mentioned john mcphee earlier john mcphee if you look at his career and what he chose to do he pops in and out when he wants to and how he wants to because in the end what you leave is what you leave i don't think that people are going to be reading match reports of a semi-final match or somebody's interview of a young tennis player who's trying to park a car 30 years mm -hmm. from now and that doesn't necessarily need to be the goal of anyone. Everybody has their own objectives in writing. But information now, technology, what I love about this podcast and what you're doing is it's, it's a labor of love. You know, we're coming together and we're talking kind of unfiltered from the heart. And that's the way in which technology and sports can kind of like bring us hopefully to new plateaus. But there's a way in which if you're not careful, you can get perks that seem useful. I get to see the matches. I get to expense my meals. Isn't this great? Mm -hmm. And then seven years later, you're still doing the same thing. It's a grind. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that believe in good sentences and believe that your experience is a singular experience and that it matters. Understand that access at this point in game is not a charade, but it's a type of dance where I don't know how much the reporter is uh, needed if you had uh, David Haverstam, another great hero of mine, who he's, he's stuck around with the Trailblazers, the Portland Trailblazers in the late 70s. He wrote a book about it, right? It's kind of on the beat for the year. But athletes don't need us in that way anymore. That's, they have Instagram, they have PR firms and mm -hmm. everything like that. They don't need you, mm -hmm. and they know that. So they put stipulations on you for access. Access is the carrot that's dangled in front of you. But then it becomes a lot about leveraged relationships. Fortunately, that's not the case for me. I feel very blessed in that sense. But it, it's easy to be swallowed up in the maelstrom of all of that. So be an individual and write well and whatever gift you have, you know, just try to pay it forward. That's why I love what you're doing. You know what I mean? This Aww. is about paying things forward. Zibi, you know, the sweetest thing I've heard in response to this book is, you know, I read this book and now I want to go play. Or I read this book and I used to watch a lot of tennis, but now I'm going to watch a lot of tennis. That for me is it's what amazing. it's all about. It's paying it forward, you know. Uh -huh. so. Well, thank you so much. It's been truly, truly a pleasure to chat with you. So no, thank the you pleasure's been coming. mine. Thank, thank you. Thank you.
This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 